1 Samuel chapter 18, 1 through 4. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And then chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. So David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. And if your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly seeks, earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, to his city. For there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out to the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time, tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then sin and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. This is the word of the Lord. So we're continuing our series in David's life, and this morning we're studying the theme of friendship. The theme of friendship, because David and Jonathan's friendship is one of the most pronounced and beautiful relationships in the entire Bible. One really significant aspect of being made in the image of God is that every single one of us are made for connection, for connection with other people. We're designed for relationships. We're designed for community. And we're getting worse at it. We're getting worse at it. We have more connections 
than ever and less friendships. Back in 2017, the Surgeon General of the United States released a statement that the U.S. was experiencing what he termed a loneliness epidemic. A loneliness epidemic. He argued that this is a serious public health concern, and think about it, that was pre-COVID. This week, I read an article published on November 28th of last year in the New York Times, and the article was entitled, Why is it so hard for men to make close friends? Why is it so hard for men to make close friends? And the article argues that American men appear to be stuck in a friendship recession. A friendship recession. A trend that predates COVID-19, but that seems to have accelerated over the past several years as loneliness levels have crept up worldwide. And the article referenced a survey done in 2021 of 20,000 adults in the United States. And less than half of the men surveyed said that they were truly satisfied with how many friends they had. And 25% of the men said they had no friends at all. None. Which is a five-fold increase since 1990. This is a major issue that we don't talk about very often, but we feel it often. One of the reasons we don't talk about it, I think, is because the Christian church has not done a good job in this area. We lack skill at discipling people in the art of spiritual friendship. Are you a good friend? Do you have good friends? True friends? Friendship is essential for human happiness. Some of the great forefathers of our faith have agreed. St. Augustine, the famous North African bishop, wrote this. In this world, two things are essential, life and friendship. They are nature's gifts. God created us that we might exist and live, but if we are not to remain solitary, there is friendship. C.S. Lewis not a bishop, but also deeply beloved, in The Four Loves wrote this, friendship is the greatest of worldly goods. Certainly to me, it is the chief happiness of life. In our study of David's life, we come today to his relationship with his best friend, Saul's son, Jonathan. Jonathan was a stable, life-giving gracious presence to David in a challenging season in David's life. Jonathan was faithful. Jonathan was kind. David loved Jonathan, and Jonathan loved David. The author in verse 1, which Cliff read, gives us this wonderful image there in chapter 18. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. We are so bad in the Christian church and in Western liberal democracy today that we don't know what to do with that kind of language. In fact, many have assumed that these two men must have been in some sort of sexual relationship because men don't have that kind of relationship with other men. How pathetic and how parched is our view of true friendship? 
One thing that God desires for every single one of us is that we would have friendships like this, where our souls are knit together. That kind of love, that kind of intimacy, that kind of friendship is one of the chief means of grace by which God shows his love for us in Jesus and matures us as his people. So I want you to ask God this morning to give you these kinds of friendships if you don't have them and to be this kind of friend. And I want to show you four characteristics from these verses, really chapters 18, 19, and 20 of 1 Samuel. Four characteristics of true friendship seen in David and Jonathan. Here's the first one. True friendships commit. True friendships commit. Brian last week covered these first four verses in chapter 18 briefly, but I want to focus on them a little further. The way the author describes the relationship between David and Jonathan, I find it to be so compelling. We've already seen that he says their souls were were knit together. And then in verse 1, he goes on to say that Jonathan loved David as he loved his own soul. And that phrase is repeated throughout the next five or so chapters, that he loved him as he loved his own soul. Their souls were knit together. Jonathan and David, they meet and they realize how much they both like and love each other. And then, here's what I want you to see, they commit. In fact, the word used repeatedly is a very well-known Old Testament word, the word covenant. Look at what the author tells us in verse 3. Jonathan made a covenant with, again, because he loved him as his own soul. Now, there's a There's a formal aspect to their covenant relationship. It involves making promises to one another, pledging faithfulness to one another. That word covenant, it's a really strong word, and it's a really strong image. That's why we reserve it today for the most significant of human relationships, relationships like marriage. Marriage is a covenant. Jonathan and David's commitment to their friendship was covenantal. And here's what that meant for them, and here's what it means for you. It involved vulnerable risk. Vulnerable risk in committing to one another in friendship. In this covenantal act, Jonathan and David are in effect saying, I'm with you. I'm with you through thick and through thin. You're my brother. I'm in it with you to the end. Some of you know that I have a relationship with five other pastors around the country uh, in what we call a pastoral cohort. We meet once a year together. We've been doing that for about five years, and we talk multiple times every week. And these five guys uh, are some of my best friends in the world. Uh, There's nothing that they don't know about me, and there's nothing I don't know about them. But i got to tell you, that relationship involves vulnerable risk. It involves commitment, so much so that most of the years when I've come back from our time together, Marianne asked me, how was it? And I've said, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do it anymore. I don't like these guys knowing all this about me. I'm done. This year, I decided to go all in again (laughs) and to stick with them. One thing we often say to one another, all of us are pastors, all of us have our struggles, just like you have your struggles, but we regularly will say to one another, we are with you to the end. We're with you to the end. You know who else was a great friend? 
Samwise Gamgee. <laughs> Samwise Gamgee was a great friend to Frodo. When Frodo's going to go off by himself with the ring. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just bear with me for a minute, okay? He's going to go off with himself by the ring in Tolkien's great story. But Sam follows. And Sam says to Frodo, You can trust me to stick with you through thick and thin to the bitter end. I am coming with you. Or I'm going to follow you like a hound. Do you follow anyone like a hound? Are you that committed. Jonathan, in particular, makes it clear to David that he's for him, that he's with him to the end. Brian touched on this last week. He does this in this incredibly humble and sacrificial act we read about there in 18.4. Look at what it says. Jonathan, we read, stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Brian said last week that this is Jonathan saying, in essence, I'm giving up my rights, my rights as the heir, my rights as the prince, and I'm giving them to you, David. I love how Ralph Davis, the commentator, puts it. Listen to what he says, quote, This deed on Jonathan's part was an act of faith. Only faith makes us willing to be the lesser. Jonathan's covenant commitment to David flies smack in the face of all political sense. Jonathan really did seek First, another kingdom. It didn't make sense. So, are you a committed friend? Are you a committed friend? I'm afraid that the norm in our world and in many of our lives is to treat friendships in transactional ways. The word Marianne has often used is that we commoditize. We commoditize people. We treat relationships like they're a currency. I think often we tend to have friends because of what they can do for us. They meet a need we have. They provide us with something of value. And frankly, touchy subject here for a minute, guys. This happens in church community all the time. My colleague who preaches at a church called the Austin Stone in Austin, his name's Ross Lester, has an amazing sermon on friendship that I would commend to you. It's impacted a lot of this sermon. And at one point in that sermon, he he asks this question. How many of us are more interested in what we can gain in church relationships than what we can give? And he argues that the reason we often feel isolated in church community is because we're focused on what we can gain. People say, I feel friendless. And then we engage, and it's only meet my needs, but don't demand anything sacrificial or costly of me. That's not going to bring the friendship that we all long for. And I'm not saying all of our struggles are rooted in that, but far more than we think are. Ironically, deep satisfaction in relationship comes through giving yourself up vulnerably, not in receiving the benefits another offers you. Again, C.S. Lewis writes wonderfully, quote, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. And that's true for animal lovers, isn't it? 
Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Secondly, true friendships celebrate. True friendships celebrate. Jonathan gives David his armor. He gives David his sword. He forsakes his own inheritance as the crown prince of Israel and says, in effect, David is the man. David is God's anointed. David is the one I will follow. David is the one I will submit to. David is the one I will go to battle for. Last week, Brian really helpfully pointed out how Saul felt there in chapter 18 when the crowds were singing David's praises. Saul struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, verse 8 says. And this saying displeased him. But not Jonathan. The text is not explicit here. But I think we can very rightly see Jonathan right there in the middle of the crowd singing his heart out, celebrating his friend. No one's singing Jonathan's praises. Jonathan's a great warrior. Jonathan has killed many Philistines. Jonathan loves Israel, but he's fine with that because he loves his friend. Later, when Jonathan is attempting to persuade his dad, Saul, not to hurt David. We didn't read this. This is in chapter 19. We see Jonathan explicitly celebrate David's victories. 19.5. He says to Saul, David took his life in his hands and he struck down the Philistine and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. And in their last meeting together, Jonathan and David, that we have in the Bible, Jonathan chapter 23, we read, strengthened David's hand in God. What a line. He strengthened his hand in God. And he said to David, you shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. Jonathan celebrated David's achievements. Jonathan rejoiced in David's victories. Jonathan was glad for David's accomplishments. He genuinely desired David's good, David's flourishing, Are we more like Jonathan or Saul? Are we more like Jonathan or Saul on this point? Saul cannot handle David because he lives based on comparison. Jonathan, Saul, excuse me, cannot handle David because he lives based on rivalry. It literally drives Saul mad. Jonathan abandons rivalry with David and celebrates him instead. What are you like? Do you get jealous of your friends' successes, victories, and blessings? How often have you witnessed a great thing happen to a friend and you outwardly congratulate them and say, I'm so happy for you with a smile plastered across your face while inwardly you're cursing them and you're cursing God. I got to confess, I've done this. I've done this a lot. 
just not too long ago, I was in my car on the way to an appointment and a pastor friend called me. And the sole reason, I'm sorry to say, that he was to tell me amazing, wonderful piece of news that God had done through his ministry in his church. And I said, I heard him say it and I said, man, that is amazing. I'm so happy for you. And I hung up the phone and got mad. I got mad. And I said, why don't you do this for me, God? Why does he get this? Why does he get the building? Why does he get the megachurch? Why does he get the boat? Why does he get the vacation house? Why does he, why does she, etc., etc., etc.? We don't celebrate. Here's the lesson. Comparison kills contentment. And comparison kills companionship. It's almost impossible to be in community with someone when you're threatened by and jealous of their success. Can we be secure in the gospel? <laughs> that's, the real, that's the real question, my friends. Can we be secure enough in the gospel that we can celebrate others' successes? Secure enough that we can love our friends in this way? If you can just, in faith, rest, in the great news of Jesus Christ, that every spiritual blessing is ours, that he is for us and that he has given us himself and that, you know what, he takes pretty daggum good care of all of us. If you can rest in that, one way that shows up is you can celebrate what Jesus is doing in others instead of second-guessing God and wondering about what you think he should be doing in you. True friends, commit. True friends celebrate. Third, true friends listen. True friends listen. Go to chapter 20. Later in the story, um, Saul's tried to kill David a couple of times here. We skipped chapter 19. Fun chapter, especially Saul's naked prophesying there at the end of chapter 19. I skipped that text intentionally. Chapter 20, uh, David and Jonathan meet again. David has fled to Jonathan's home in Ramah because... Jonathan's dad, Saul's trying to kill him, and he says, verse 1, What have I done? What's my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? In other words, bro, why is your dad trying to kill me? And initially, Jonathan doesn't accept this. Verse 2, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, closing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. Now, there's some naivete there for sure on Jonathan's parts. But think about how difficult it would have been to hear <laughs> that his dad has become a deranged, rampaging murderer, bent only on ending David's life. But what does Jonathan do? He listens. He listens to David. He, he hears him out. Look at what happens next. Verse 3, David vowed again. And he said, your father knows really well that I've found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, don't let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there's but a step between me and death. Then, listen, then Jonathan said to David, verse 4, whatever you say, I will do for you. And so they come up with this scheme. Jonathan's going to go back to Saul's house and uh, eat dinner. And because it's a festival, a new moon festival, Jonathan is going to tell Saul... Hey, David can't come. 
he had a prior engagement in Bethlehem. He's sacrificing there with his family. He didn't get a chance to tell you he wasn't going to make dinner. Sorry, Saul. Wish David well. And they say, if Saul gets really mad when he hears that news, that's evidence that he's out to get you. But if Saul's like, okay, we'll see David when he comes back, that's evidence that Saul is okay with you, that he's fine with this. And, and it plays out in the rest of chapter 20. Jonathan goes back to Saul's house and sits down at dinner, and Saul says, where's David? And Jonathan says the exact story that they come up with. Well, he had to go down to Bethlehem. He's making a sacrifice. He sends his regrets. He did an RSVP. He couldn't make it. And what does Saul do? Not only does he get mad, he flings a spear at Jonathan, attempting to strike him just like he had done to David in chapter 19. Jonathan now knows the truth. And so he goes back to David, and he gives him this code that they had worked out. He brings an archer boy with him. But he had said to David, hey, we might not be able to meet up because Saul has spies everywhere. And so my archer boy, if he shoots the arrow way past the rock you're hiding behind, it's time to get out of town, right? But if he shoots the arrow, you know, somewhere near you, it's okay to come back. And so Saul, Jonathan says, shoot that arrow 500 yards, as far away as you can. And then he and David meet at the end of chapter 20, say goodbye. The point I want you to see is that Jonathan was able to hear his friend. He was able to hear David, even when it was a really hard message to take in. He empathized with David. He listened to David. Think about this. What would most princes in the history of the world done if they were in Jonathan's situation? They would have leveraged the information that they had received and betrayed the threat to the throne. The Game of Thrones way would have been for Jonathan to report to Saul where David was, have David killed, and secure his own place in the kingdom. Are we good listeners? I'm not. But that's so important in friendship. The question I asked is not, are we good fixers? Are we good listeners? The desire many of us have is to give the input or, or the counsel or the service that will fix the issue. We can rarely do that if we're honest. Instead, this story tells us that true friends listen and true friends pray. I reread this week Dietrich Bonhoeffer's wonderful little book on community. Maybe the best book on community that I've ever read. It's called Life Together. And he talks about the ministry of listening. And he says at one point in that chapter this, quote, There is a kind of listening with half an ear that presumes already to know what the other person has to say. It is an impatient, inattentive listening that despises the brother and is only waiting for a chance to speak and thus get rid of the other person. Knife to the heart. Christians have forgotten that the ministry of listening has been committed to them by him who is himself the great listener and whose work they should share. We should listen with the ears of God that we may speak the word of God. True friends listen. Last, true friends honor. True friends honor. Jonathan finds himself, we've already touched on this, in multiple scenarios in these chapters in which it would have been very easy, very reasonable even, To speak one way to David and another way to Saul in order to advance his own interests. 
in order to advance his own ambitions, in order to his own agenda. So, so easy. All he needs to do is support his dad's suspicions against David to turn people against David. All he needs to do is present David in a lesser light to Saul. And maybe David won't die, but he certainly isn't going to be king. But again and again and again, Jonathan speaks the truth in love to David, and he speaks the truth in love about David. He speaks the truth in love to him and about him. In other words, he honors him. In fact, he stands with David and he defends David even when his own life is on the line here in chapter 20 and further on into the story. We could put it in modern terms like this. Jonathan resists the opportunity to be a people pleaser. And instead, he stays true to David. He could have so easily told David what David wanted to hear and then the next day gone home excuse me, and told Saul what Saul wanted to hear and managed both relationships in a way that would have benefited him maximally. But instead, he's a true friend. People-pleasing is so exhausting. And it's so destructive because we can't remember how to manage which relationship. Instead, Jonathan speaks the truth in love at the peril of his own well-being. How do you speak about your friends when they're not around? Do you honor them? If a friend is taking the risk of vulnerability with you, do you use that information subtly, shrewdly, slyly to make them look a little worse before others and yourself look a little better? Our hearts can be so deceitful in these areas. Be a true friend. Be a true friend. Honor those you love. Speak well to them and speak well about him. What a relationship these two had. What a friend. What a friend David had in Jonathan. A relationship of refuge in a time in which David deeply needed it. And as course of, of course, as every story does, this story whispers to us. Really, it kind of shouts at the ministry of Jesus. What a friend David had in Jonathan. What a friend we have in Jesus. Remember what Jesus says to his friends in John's gospel? Let me tell you, chapter 15. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. Listen, you are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Listen, the gospel tells us that Jesus has made us his friends. Jesus is a friend that commits. He has pledged himself to you. To always be with you in love. Jesus is a friend that celebrates you. As the father rejoiced when his son came back home, Jesus rejoices over you. 
Jesus is a friend that listens. He communes with us and hears all of our needs and desires in prayer with perfect, loving empathy. Jesus is a friend who honors you. God honors you. In fact, he took upon himself all of our dishonor in order to give us a place of honor right by his side. Jesus is the great friend. Do you know that? Is Jesus your friend? Rest in his friendship. And then go be a true friend. The world really needs it. And so do we. Let's pray.